15 years old, my family and I were at a summer camp up near Rhinelander, Wisconsin, Crescent Lake Bible Camp. And uh, my dad, he was a uh, traveling uh, speaker. He was an evangelist and an apologist. And so many of our summers as kids were spent uh, traveling around the country, going to various family camps and retreats as my dad would be uh, speaking at them. And uh, this particular summer there at Crescent Lake Bible Camp, my dad one afternoon during our free time decided that he was going to teach my brother and I how to sail. And so uh, we went down to the beach during uh, free time and we walked out to the docks and there was this, uh, this beautiful sailboat the camp had. It was, it was like 25 footer. I mean, it was a pretty good sized sailboat, held multiple people. And uh, there was a college age student who was in charge of all the boats there at the camp checking them out. And he insisted, he said, all right, you guys, uh, we need to give you the safety lesson and we got to make sure that uh, you're certified to take this boat out because, you know, this is a good sized sailboat boat. We want to make sure you know what you're doing when you get out on the water. And my dad, you know, he just protested right away. He said, no, 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 I'm all good. You know, I, uh, I worked at a camp back in college and I actually taught people how to sail. So we're all good. We know what we're doing. And this young man, he's like, no, I think we better do the, the safety routine. And, and my dad, no, 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 I'm good. I know how to sail. No worries. We'll just, we'll just take it out. We'll be okay. And uh, little did I know when my dad said that he knew how to sail, what he meant was he used to teach people how to sail on those little 10-foot sunfish sailboats, you know, those single-person sailboats. And uh, like I said, this was like a 25, I mean, 30-foot maybe. It was a big sailboat. And, uh, but my dad was like, no, no, we're going to be okay. So we get on this sailboat, and, you know, it was, uh, it was a pretty nice day outside. I mean, there were some waves out on the lake, and, and Crescent Lake's a fairly good-sized lake. We start making our way out across the lake, and everything's going great, and, and I'm thinking, man, this is pretty cool. My dad knows how to sail, you know, and, and he's uh, kind of pointing out things on the boat to us. Well, everything was going smoothly and according to plan until that first big gust of wind came up. We were in the middle of our first turn out in the middle of the lake. I mean, when we were going straight ahead, everything was going nice and smooth. But as soon as we started to make our first turn, this huge gust of wind came up from the side. And before I knew it, the sailboat was flipped upside down with the mast and sail pointed straight down under the water. We're underneath the boat literally swimming for our lives to get out from underneath this sailboat. And we swim out from underneath the boat. Out in the middle of this lake, the boat is totally swamped. We're laying on top of the hull of the boat, just thinking to ourselves, what just happened? My little brother at the time, he was about 12 years old, he said, sure, Dad, you sure know how to sail. And uh, we end up sitting out there for like a half hour, waving our arms back at the camp, trying to get somebody to notice that we were flipped over and swamped out in the middle of this lake. All because my dad ignored the kid who wanted to give him a lesson and help him go through the, uh, the safety course. Well, the key to keep in mind as I share this story is when we're sailing through rough waters, okay, you better be prepared, friends, and you better know what you're doing, all right? And this is exactly why the author of Hebrews wrote the section that we're going to be in this morning in Hebrews chapter 13. The, he, the Christians of the early church, the Hebrew Christians, were beginning to experience the rough waters of opposition to their faith. We've talked about this over the previous weeks. But these early Christians in the early years of the church, these Hebrew Christians, they had converted to Christ. They had put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And they had begun to experience all kinds of trials 
and tribulations, the rough waters that come for li- with living for Christ in a hostile culture. The Jewish people that they had come out of, their family, their friends, the community around them, weren't excited about this new religion that they were following. And they were experiencing opposition from that front. They were experiencing opposition from the government. The Roman government was just beginning to increase its persecution of the Christians. In fact, in a few short years after the book of Hebrews is written, the emperor Nero comes along and ushers in one of the most brutal periods of persecution that Christianity has ever experienced. And then on top of the the cultural and the religious persecution and the political persecution, they were beginning to experience their own degree of doubt. Did we make the right choice in putting our trust in Jesus Christ? And so the author of Hebrews wrote this book and this passage in particular to provide encouragement, to provide guidance to help these Hebrew Christians navigate the rough waters of life around them. Now, this isn't too different from our experience here as Christians in America 2,000 years later. Because the reality is, is all of us experience the turbulent waters of trying to navigate this life and hold fast to our faith in Jesus Christ. And for some of us, we will experience opposition and persecution like the early church experienced. Maybe not so much here in America, but all over the world today, Christians live in places where they are experiencing outright hostility to their faith. Cultural hostility, religious hostility from those around them, political hostility from their own governments. Now we experience some of that opposition here in America. Some of us are concerned because it seems like some of that opposition is increasing here in America, right? But the reality is opposition to our faith has been a part of the life of the church from the very beginning. And regardless of the degree of opposition you face today from our culture, from our government, The reality is that all of us experience trials to one degree or another. Whether it's hostility and opposition from the culture or the government, all of us will experience the reality of trials in our life. Turbulence, difficult waters in our marriages, in our family life with our kids, situations at work, financial struggles, health issues. When your wife is diagnosed with cancer, right? The waters of life can become very turbulent. The winds can begin to blow very quickly, very fast. And before you know it, if you're not ready, if you're not prepared, your faith can get flipped upside down. You can find yourself sitting on top of the hall asking God, what in the world is going on? And how did I get here? How did I get swamped like this? And so this is why the author of Hebrews wrote chapter 13. He wants to provide for us some powerful encouragements to help us keep the faith. How do we keep the faith? How do we hold on to the faith in the midst of the trials of life, no matter what those trials might be? This is the point of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17 that we're going to look at today. If you recall the last two weeks, we've been talking about how these Hebrew Christians are being encouraged, that they're on the march to Zion, right? This world is not our home. We're looking forward to the kingdom to come. We're looking forward to our heavenly home, Zion, and we're marching towards Zion. And last week, Pastor Rick talked about part of our march towards Zion is how we live in love with one another, right? How we love and treat one another. That's part of our march to Zion. But today, the author is going to transition from how we treat one another in love to how we keep the faith and not get swamped on our journey to Zion. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three keys. 
Three keys we find in our passage today that will help us to keep the faith no matter what you face, no matter what trials, no matter what turbulence, no matter how strong the winds blow. The author of Hebrews gives us three keys for keeping the faith. The first one I want to look at this morning, key number one to keep the faith is this. We need to remember our spiritual heroes. Remember your spiritual heroes. Let's take a look at our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verses 7 through 8. Remember your spiritual heroes. Verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. The first key, friends, to navigating the treacherous waters of life and faith is simply this. We need to remember our spiritual heroes. Now, these aren't just any particular leaders that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. When he says, remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life, these aren't contemporary leaders that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. The people that the author of Hebrews has in mind that he wants us to remember, that he wants us to consider, these are leaders who have already gone home to be with the Lord. These are spiritual leaders, spiritual heroes who have passed away, they've gone home to be with the Lord. How do we know this? It's because of the word outcome that we find here in this passage. The word outcome here refers to the sum total of one's accomplishments in life. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Look at the race they've won, the the race they've run. Look at how they finished the race. Look at the totality of their journey as they marched to Zion. Consider the outcome of their way of life. They've completed their service and they lived a life of exemplary faith. And now today they serve as reminders and encouragements for us as we continue our journey to Zion. Friends, these are spiritual heroes of the faith. They're part of the great cloud of witnesses that we talked about back in Hebrews chapter 11. Faithful men and women who ran the race, they finished the course, they finished well, and now they serve as examples and inspiration to us to run, to press on. Who are some of your spiritual heroes? You know, man, I've got a number of spiritual heroes. One of my most powerful spiritual heroes that is an inspiration to me every day of my life is my grandpa. My grandpa Mel Krause, he was my mom's dad. My grandpa Krause was an incredible man. He, he really inspired me in two of my great passions in life, golf and following Jesus. I mean, man, I, I can't wait to get to heaven again someday and see my grandpa. My grandpa, he was the world's best worst golfer. I'm not kidding you. He had, the, he had the ugliest swing you've ever seen. I mean, he, he would line up to take a shot, and every time he would swing for that ball, he would fall away from the, from the ball. And I mean, it was just the funniest looking swing, but somehow he worked it out, and, and he became a pretty good golfer, even though to the very end of his life, he had the ugliest swing you could ever imagine. 
I mean, my grandpa was such a bad golfer. He used to carry around in his wallet a newspaper clipping from the day he hit a hole in one. And he used to go around showing his buddies his you know, newspaper clipping from his hole in one. What he didn't tell you and what the clipping didn't tell you was he hit his hole in one by shanking his tee shot into an oak tree that was off to the side of the green. It hit an overhanging limb, bounced down to the green and rolled into the hole. That was his hole in one. That was the kind of golfer my grandpa was. My grandpa was such a bad golfer, he had a practice green he built in his backyard. He literally killed the family dog by chipping and hitting the dog in the head. I mean, but my grandpa, he loved golf, and, and it was always a passion of, of mine and his and our family. We would always get together to play golf. It's one of my great memories of my grandpa. But friends, for as bad of a golfer as my grandpa was, he was an incredible man of faith. I mean, my grandpa is truly one of my spiritual heroes. Served in his church his whole life in various positions. But, but more than in his church, it was how he lived his life day by day and modeled his faith in his workplace, in his relationship, even to the very end of his days. My grandpa, he owned a hardware store in Lumberyard, north of Green Bay. And I remember as a kid going and spending days in the summer with my grandpa at his workplace. I can remember many times where these farmers would come in and during the 80s when, the, when farming was a tough occupation and, and these farmers would come in and they couldn't pay their bills. And I remember many times watching my grandpa with honesty and integrity talking with these farmers about how they could arrange some kind of payment plan that would work for them because he cared more about them as people than he did about making a buck off of them. He modeled that integrity in his work all the time. I remember watching his faith in action during the last 10 years of his life as he cared for my grandma as she suffered with growing dementia and Alzheimer's. Towards the end of her life, she didn't even know who my grandpa was anymore. My grandpa, every day, after he could no longer care for her at home, he would faithfully drive every day, one hour both ways, to sit at her bedside at her nursing home, even though she had no idea who, she, who he was. And I remember just thinking, what an incredible testimony of faith and faithfulness. And even in the dying days when my grandpa was in the hospital dying in extreme pain from stomach cancer, I remember our family, we would go and we'd sit next to him in the hospital room and we'd sing hymns with him. And I remember opening up my Bible, this very Bible, reading psalms of encouragement to my grandpa. And friends, I will never forget as I would read through the psalms to encourage my grandpa with the word of God, almost every single psalm I read, my grandpa would start mouthing it along with me word for word. He had committed it to memory. He knew it before I even read it. This was a life of faith. This is the kind of life, friends, that I look to when I encounter the trials in my own life. There were many times last summer when I was sitting by my wife in the chemo room as she's getting her chemotherapy treatments. And I remember the thing that inspired me was thinking back to my grandpa, how he sat next to his wife, my grandmother, and loved her through the difficult times. Friends, we all need these spiritual heroes who serve as reminders and encouragements to help us keep the faith. Spiritual heroes leave an example and an inspiration. So let me ask you, who are your spiritual heroes? You know, young people here this morning, we've got a lot of young people here this morning, you need to find spiritual heroes that you can look to that you can look to and emulate their faith, who can be a source of encouragement to you to help you press on. It may be somebody in your family, it may be somebody here at church that maybe you don't even know yet. Some of you might be thinking, I don't know if I have any spiritual heroes, Jason. You need to find them. 
You need to plug into the Christian community. You need to get involved here at church because I guarantee you there are some incredible men and women of faith here who could serve as spiritual heroes for you. But you need spiritual heroes. And older folks in here. Yeah, Daryl Mosby, I'm looking at you, right? (laughs) All you older folks in here, are you living to be a spiritual hero? What kind of legacy are you seeking to leave for the young people coming behind you? Because the reality is is somebody is watching you. Somebody is observing your life today more than you even realize. You know, Wade, Roxy, one day your grandkids are gonna look back at you and they're gonna see grandparents who lived a life of faith and they're gonna say, you know what? My spiritual hero is my grandma. My spiritual hero is my grandpa because I saw how they loved one another. I saw how they cared for their family. Who are you seeking to leave a legacy for? We need spiritual heroes if we're gonna keep the faith. Now in our passage, we come to this very interesting verse here, in verse eight. In verse eight, we find this phrase, this verse that may be the most popular verse in the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And a lot of people ask, you know, this doesn't seem to fit here, right? Why, why is this here? This, this, this verse is talking about remembering our spiritual heroes. Why is there this true and powerful statement about Jesus, but, but what's it have to do with remembering our spiritual heroes? Well, friends, why is this here? It's here because of this. Because the same Jesus who sustained my grandpa yesterday lives and sustains for us today. And the same Jesus who lives and sustains for us today is gonna live and sustain for us tomorrow. And the same Jesus who lives and sustains for us tomorrow is gonna live and sustain for us for all of eternity. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and he's the same today and he is the same forever. In other words, you can count on Jesus. He's not changing, he's not going anywhere. Your circumstances might change. The wind and waves of life might be raging all around you. Your circumstances might change, but Jesus never does. One of my favorite verses in this whole series that we've looked at in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter six, verse 19, where we read that Jesus Christ is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Friends, Jesus Christ is an anchor for our soul. When the winds and the waves and the trials and the opposition of life rage around us, you can hold on to Jesus. I remember as a kid going down to the playground with my dad and, you know, at the playground, not so many today, but back in the day, they used to have those merry-go-rounds. Remember the merry-go-rounds with the big spinning wheel? And, and uh, my brother and I, we would hang out to those posts and my dad, he'd start whipping us around, you know, and we'd be like, faster, faster. And he'd be like, you want to keep going? we go, faster, faster. And he'd start pushing us so fast, we'd be flying around, hanging on for dear life. Pretty soon we'd be like, not that fast. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed this on those merry-go-rounds, but the further you get away from that center anchor post, the faster it seems like it's spinning and the harder are the forces that are trying to pull you off that thing, am I right? It's a principle of physics called centrifugal force. But the reality is if you get close to that anchor pole, if you hold on tight, no matter how fast that wheel might be spinning, you will be secure, you'll be stable, you're not going anywhere. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says Jesus Christ is an anchor for the soul. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can count on him. He's not changing. He'll be a stable source of hope no matter what you're going through in life. You want to keep the faith, number one, you need to remember your spiritual heroes. And your spiritual heroes are spiritual heroes because they know Jesus Christ who's the anchor for your soul. 
the second key to navigating the waters of life and faith. We need to resolve to hold fast to the gospel of Christ. Resolve to hold fast to the gospel of Christ. Let's read verses nine through 16 together. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise and do not forget the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The second key to navigating the life of faith, friends, to making it through the turbulent waters of life is to resolve to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This section of Hebrews 13 starts out by encouraging us in verse nine, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Okay, there are strange teachings out there. Don't be carried away by them. Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in the first century when this was written, the strange teachings that are being referred to here, historians aren't really sure exactly what the author of Hebrews is referring to. We have a number of guesses, and it's obvious that his readers understood because he didn't need to mention it. They knew that there were strange teachings. What our best guesses are is that there was a form of Judaism at this time, like a sect or a cult of Judaism at this time, that had a custom of participating in what they called fellowship meals. And in these fellowship meals, some of these Jews believed that by participating in these meals, God would impart a special blessing on them. In other words, they could merit extra favor from God by participating in these fellowship meals. And so some of these Hebrew Christians were apparently being tempted to join in, thinking that there was something more they could do to earn extra favor from God. Well, yeah, we've got Jesus and we put our trust in Jesus, but, but you know what? If we go to these meals with our buddies, our friends, our family, they say that God will bestow extra blessing on us, more favor. We can even make our lives even more right with God if we go to these fellowship meals. And so the author of Hebrews here reminds these Christians, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And instead, what does he do? He reminds them and points them back to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of grace, that Jesus Christ is all we need. And he points them back to the example of the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial lamb during the Day of Atonement who was sacrificed for our sins and then the remains of that lamb were taken outside the camp to be burned. But it was that temporary sacrifice. We've talked about this already in previous weeks. That sacrifice which was temporary that had to be repeated over and over again so that the people could be made right with God. Their sins could be forgiven but again it was only a temporary sacrifice. But 
as Hebrews has said so many times, and as our author reminds us here and points these people back to the truth in verse nine, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. See, he points us back to Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, who just like that sacrificial lamb of the day of atonement, was a sacrifice, but he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb of God, the sinless lamb of God who came to give his life to be a sacrifice for us so that we could be made right in our relationship with our holy God once again. And friends, the reality is is there is nothing more you need to have a right relationship with God than Jesus Christ. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. 2 Peter 1.3, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. His divine power has given us everything we need. Okay, He's already given us everything we need. How much is everything? Everything. He's given us everything we need for what? For life and godliness through him who called us by his own glory and goodness, Jesus Christ. Friends, God has given us everything we need to have a right relationship with him. God's not holding anything out on us as some kind of secret knowledge that needs to be attained or there's some special ceremonies you have to do. No, God has given us everything we need to have a right relationship with him. But the reality is our world today is still flooded with all kinds of strange teachings that would seek to take our eyes off of the gospel of grace in salvation alone in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more you need, friends. I I was just thinking this week of some of the many examples, even contemporary examples of how there are still these strange teachings in our world today. May, the May issue of Christianity Today magazine had a cover story about a a hyper-charismatic church out in California. And, and this church teaches all kinds of extra biblical things, things that aren't in scripture. Remember, God's given us everything we already need. But one of the things they're teaching their people, they're teaching them crazy things like, like this practice they call grave soaking. They send people all over the world to find the graves of famous dead men and women of faith. And they say that by laying on top of these graves that they can soak in the spiritual power of these deceased saints. This is crazy. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Why? Because God's already given us everything we need. He's given us everything we need. I heard, I was talking to a missionary friend of mine. They were telling me about this, this cult in China that's running rampant in China today. It's called Eastern Lightning. And this cult claims that Jesus has returned. He's already come back. He lives today as a Chinese peasant woman. And the followers of this cult have to follow her without question. They have to give all of their money to her. They have to do anything she tells them to do in order to secure their salvation. Salvation isn't by grace, it's by following this Chinese peasant woman and everything that she teaches. And friends, this cult is running rampant all throughout China. It's devastating the churches in China today. A couple weeks ago, many in our nation were saddened when when we heard of the loss of the rock music icon Prince, who who was truly a musical legend. But while our culture and our country mourned his passing, I mourned thinking about this guy who's going to spend eternity separated from God. You see, Prince was a practicing and active Jehovah's Witness. 
He believed that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. He believes that Jesus came back to earth in 1914 and rules from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in Brooklyn, New York as an invisible ghost. He also believed that he had to prove his worthiness to Jehovah by going door-to-door witnessing. And if you recall, the Star Tribune and others had all kinds of articles in recent weeks about people who were reporting these, these stories over the years where prints would show up at their door passing out Watchtower magazines testifying on behalf of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He would do this regularly when he wasn't out on tour because he believed he had to earn his salvation. There was something more he needed to do. The average Jehovah's Witness will spend eight to 10 hours a week going door to door witnessing to try to prove their worthiness to Jehovah. God has already given us everything we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, let me let you in on a little secret. Keep this in mind. Don't ever forget this. Jesus plus anything else is not the biblical gospel. If somebody ever comes to you and says you need Jesus plus, Jesus plus your money, Jesus plus your church attendance, Jesus plus your obedience, Jesus plus door-to-door witnessing, Jesus plus anything else is not the biblical gospel. John 6, 28 through 29, Jesus' disciples came to Jesus. They said, Lord, what do we need to do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus said, the work that God requires is this. Believe in the one whom he has sent. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace we are saved, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's by grace. It's the free gift of God. But we need to understand something, friends. Holding fast to the gospel of grace will oftentimes come with a cost. And this is where the author of Hebrews helps us prepare to accept the cost that comes with trusting in Jesus Christ. He says there might be a cost, but he says it's worth it. In verse 13, the author of Hebrews goes on in our passage. He says, let us then go out to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Let us go out to Jesus outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Like the sacrificial lamb whose remains were taken outside the camp, the author of Hebrews identifies Jesus Christ as one who was taken outside the city gates. He was taken to that place of shame, to Golgotha where he was crucified. He died for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And the author of Hebrews says, let us go outside to him, outside the camp, let's go to him bearing the disgrace he bore. What is the camp that we're to go out from? Well, for the first century readers of this book, the camp represented the Jewish religion. The camp was the place where the Jews were in community, where they were in fellowship with one another, in fellowship with God, and they believed that to be outside of the camp of Judaism was to be in a place of disgrace. But the author of Hebrews here encourages them, no, go outside the camp, bear that disgrace, go to Jesus Christ the source of our hope, the source of our life, the source of grace. The camp for us today, friends, is more like the values of the postmodern secular world we live in. And the author of Hebrews today, if he was writing to us, he would encourage us with these same words. He'd say, flee the camp. Go outside the camp. Bear the disgrace that Jesus bore. Bear it proudly. No matter what the culture thinks of you, no matter what opposition you face, follow Jesus Christ outside the camp. Turn your back on the values of this world and follow Jesus. You see, the reality is, is living 
for Christ often means we're going to stand in opposition to the culture around us. It's just going to happen, friends. If you want to walk with Christ, if you want to follow him faithfully, you're going to sometimes stand in opposition to the culture around us. This has been a reality for Christians throughout history, and even today all over the world, Christians have to choose to count the cost to follow Jesus Christ. In the early church, it was the Christians and their stand against Nero. They wouldn't bow down to him. They wouldn't claim him as divine. They wouldn't worship him as God. And so they would face the lions in the Colosseum. They were burnt at the stake. Nero used Christians as torches in his garden, history reports. Even today, Christians face all kinds of opposition living for Christ. Christians in the Middle East today. In the Middle East today, Christians in Iraq and Syria oftentimes wake up in the morning with this red Arabic letter, the letter N in Arabic painted on their door. The letter N in Arabic stands for Nazarene, and the ISIS terrorists will go around to the Christian neighborhoods and paint the letter N on their door because they they were followers of the Nazarene, Jesus Christ. And this symbol on your door means you either need to flee for your life or you're gonna stay and you're gonna pay the jizya tax, which means you're gonna pay us whatever we want you to pay us, or we're gonna kill you. Those are the options given to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East today. Millions of them have fled Iraq. Thousands and thousands of them have lost their lives because they choose to stand for Jesus Christ. My friend from China again was telling me recently about how the Christians in the villages in China face tremendous opposition from the spiritists in their culture. You see, the spiritists in their culture last year had a bumper crop and all of their fields and crops, their harvests were full, but the Christians' fields didn't produce in the same way. And so the spiritists look at the Christians and say, look, at, your God is weak, your God is pathetic, why don't you worship the God of our ancestors? And these Christians have to stand firm in the face of the opposition of the culture around them. Friends, even here in America, as Christians, we're facing growing hostility, growing opposition for holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I talked to a friend of mine recently, just a couple weeks ago, who is a health teacher in the public schools. And she's concerned for her job because the school districts are talking about teaching all kinds of deviant sexual behaviors in health class. The school districts are talking about teaching same-sex marriage in health class, talking about transgender issues in health class. And my friend, she says, I just can't do that as a Christian. She says, I may end up losing my job. I may end up being fired one day. But she said, you know what? I'm willing to count the cost to follow Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what it means to go outside the camp to bear the disgrace he bore. But as we consider what it might cost us to follow Jesus Christ in this world, our encouragement comes from setting our eyes on the hope that lies before us. And in verse 14, the author of Hebrews here says, for we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for that city that is to come. Friends, remember this world is not our home. Zion is our home. We're marching towards Zion. My dad, he used to tell my brother and I growing up, kids live with eternity's values in view. I can't remember how many times he would say that, but live with eternity's values in view. Make God's priorities your priorities. Live your life in light of eternity. That's what it means to march towards Zion, friends. This world is not our home. 1 Peter 2.11 says we're just aliens and strangers, temporary residents passing through whose eternal city lies in heaven. The third key 
for keeping the faith this morning in our passage is this. We need to respect the leaders that God has given us. Respect the leaders God has given you. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, by the way. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders. I'm just teasing. Not my favorite verse in the Bible. (laughs) Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Friends, as the church, we are called to obey and submit to the leaders that God has given us. Now, friends, this can sound very self-serving coming from me, one of your pastors, right? But keep in mind, this is Holy Spirit-inspired scripture, all right? This is true for me as much as it's true for you. God ordained these words to be written for our good. We are to obey and submit to the leaders that God has given us. Now, this isn't a blind obedience. Your first and foremost responsibility is to be led by Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Remember, God has already given us everything we need. Okay, So no matter what I ever say or ask of you or whatever Pastor Rick or any of our elders teach or say or ask of you, you first and foremost have a responsibility to the Scriptures and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But if your leaders, your pastors and your elders are being guided by the scriptures, are being faithful to the scriptures, being led by the Holy Spirit, and they're leading you faithfully in those things, then we are called as the church to obey and submit to the leaders that God has given us. This is the third key to navigating the life of faith. As the church, friends, your responsibility is to submit to your pastors and elders as you would submit to Christ. As pastors and elders, our responsibility is to love you as Christ loved the church, and and that is we're called to lay down our lives for your sake. It's just just like a healthy marriage relationship. Ephesians chapter five, remember? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But in the very next breath, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and be willing to lay down your life for her as Christ laid down his life for the church. This is the same model and principle that the Holy Spirit would communicate to us about a healthy church life. The followers, the people, the congregation submit to the pastors and elders like they submit to Christ and your pastors and elders lay down their lives for your sake. Verse 17 describes the role of pastors and elders like this. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. That word keep watch there in the Greek is the same word the gospel uses to refer to the shepherds, the nativity story. Remember the nativity when the angels appeared to the shepherds? The shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. The word keep watch, friends, for the shepherd implies sleepless nights. It implies watching out for the wolves who would seek to do the flock harm. It implies tending to the wounded, searching for the lost and wayward. And just like the shepherd of the ancient world, the pastor's life is one of high cost and responsibility. We're called to lay down our lives for the people of our church. The pastor's life is also one of tremendous spiritual accountability. We keep watch over you as one who must give an account. 
The Bible teaches about the Bema judgment seat of Christ, where one day all of us as believers are gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not be judged for our salvation because that's already been taken care of by Christ, but we're gonna be judged for what we did and how we live for Christ in this world. And all of us will be judged, but the Bible tells us that the leaders of the church will be judged more strictly because of the great responsibility we have. In fact, in the book of James, James chapter three, verse one, it says, not all of you brothers should aspire to be leaders and teachers because they will be judged more strictly. We pastors are one who must give an account. What is God calling us to here, friends? In this last verse of our passage today, God wants his church to function in health. Why? Because it's his bride. He loves us. He cares about us. He's gonna spend eternity with us, with us and he wants a healthy church. And a healthy church is one that is led by faithful and trustworthy shepherds and it's filled with sheep that graciously submit to their shepherd's leading. And when this happens, friends, the pastor's work is a joy and not a burden. And, and then look at how verse 17 ends. This isn't just about what we pastors get out of this. God's people in the church, that's you guys, reap the advantage of this, right? When the shepherd is happy, the sheep are gonna be happy and vice versa. It's a mutual relationship of love and service and submission and humility because this is God's will for his church. And I'll just tell you, friends, it's such a joy as a pastor to serve in a church like Lakes Free where we have sheep here in our congregation who love us as pastors, who serve with us in ministry and don't just expect us to carry out all of the work on our own. I mean, I've been overwhelmed in the eight years I've been here at Lakes Free, just, just the, the attitude of volunteerism that is in our church. When, when we come before the congregation and express a need, how many people are quick to step up and help? We had, we had an army of people here on Wednesday night setting up for VBS, all volunteers. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that happens regularly here in our church. Love for your pastors, encouragement for your pastors, support for your pastors. Man, I've got friends who serve in churches where they've got some rabid sheep in that congregation. I mean, I'm telling you guys, we are so blessed here. And please know, we don't take that for granted. We pray for you every week as a, con as a congregation, in our staff meetings, individually. We pray for you because God has called us to lay down our lives for you and it's such a blessing to serve in a healthy church with gracious sheep. Keep it up, friends. Keep it up. God wants a beautiful bride and a beautiful bride is one where the leaders are healthy, serving in humility, serving faithfully and the sheep are responding to the leading of the shepherds. We're so blessed here at our church. Let me conclude with this. As we march towards Zion, as we navigate the treacherous waters of life and faith in this world, we need to keep the faith. And to do this, we would all do well to keep in mind the lessons of our passage today. Remember your spiritual heroes, resolve to hold fast to the gospel of Christ, and respect the leaders that God has given to you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for these encouragements in our passage today. And Lord, we just pray that all of us would take these encouragements to heart. You've given them to us, Lord, to help us navigate the waters of life and to, to keep the faith. 
And Lord, help us to, to look to our spiritual heroes. Help us to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us to continue to be a church that serves with one another in humility, with graciousness, with love for one another. God, thank you for giving me the privilege of pastoring in this incredible special church. And thank you for the faithful sheep in our congregation who follow the leading of your God-given leaders in this church. Lord, may we always love one another and serve one another and share with one another in humility and in grace with the united vision to reach this community with the hope of the gospel. I just pray for your ongoing blessing, Lord, over our church, and I thank you so much for each and every one of my friends here this morning. May we always be first and foremost about Jesus Christ. May we always keep the faith. In your name I pray, amen.